be sure to follow Send Me to Sleep on your preferred podcast player so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me tonight and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, we'll be taking our final walk down the woodland path with naturalist author Winthrop Packard. We'll go bobbing for eels, spying for herons, and immersing ourselves in all the signs of the coming summer. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy. And your breath soften. As we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Bobbing for eels. It is fortunate that the angleworm is born without a voice, else, throughout the length and breadth of the land, were now resounding a chorus of doleful shrieks, for great is the dismemberment of angleworms about this time. The same warmth of imminent summer, which made the grass jump six inches in length overnight, has brought him forth in great numbers, overnight also for the angleworm is a lover of the darkness. I know Darwin thought earthworm a more proper designation of him, but it is to be believed that Darwin was not a fisherman. Had he been, he would have known that the chief end of a worm is to become bait. There may be nicer things to have than these somewhat attenuated hermits of the mould, but if there are, the fishes do not know it and there are few anglers but on May 15th would give their weight in gold for them if such was the price. It is fortunate, therefore, that angleworms are inhabitants of the earth, so to speak, and not of any one neighbourhood. It is, no doubt, possible to catch fish with other bait. There are grasshoppers, to be sure, though not at this time of year. There are various artificial flies and lures, spoon hooks and other wastrel inventions. Of these, little is to be said. Indeed, some of them are unspeakable. Unfortunate springs, April showers linger into May, finally hastening northward, lest summer catch them here and make a wet June of it. The seductive warmth of summer is in them now, and as they go spilling by of perfumed nights, they work all kinds of wonders. Things that were beginning to grow up suddenly blow up. My cherry tree has exploded overnight. Two days ago, the grass, we noted with delight, was really quite green. This morning, it waves in the wind, and I am confident that by tomorrow, at this rate, it will be full of bobo links and mowing machines. Yesterday you could see far through the woodland. Today it is clouded with its own green leaves, and along aisles that begin to be shady, the truant oven birds are shouting, Teacher, teacher, in warning to one another, every time they hear a human footfall in the path. The first dragonflies have come and in woodland places, lovely little brown butterflies skip about like mad. No wonder the Hesperia are commonly known as skippers. These that I saw today, most of them the Neos Brizo, 
the sleepy, dusky wing, defied any but the most alert eye to follow them as they dashed from invisibility on some dark fallen limb to vanishment on brown mud of the path. They seemed to skip in and out of existence at will. I call them brown, for you will see that they are that if you have a chance to see one sitting at rest. You may get near enough to see the beautiful bluish spots surrounded with dark rings on the forewings and the double row of yellow spots on the hind wings. For all that, the Neosprizo is as black as your hat to the eye when he is in flight. Perhaps that is why he vanishes so readily. You're looking for a black butterfly, and what you see is nothing but a brown bit of bark or leaf. Darwin was convinced that the earthworm, as he called him, was of inestimable value to man, and he cites how he works over the mould and loosens it up, ploughing it, as it were, for future planters who should thus be able to enjoy the fruits of the earth, levelling it and working in various ways for the good of mankind. But Darwin never says a word of the inestimable value of earthworms as angleworms. Thus often do our greatest scientists fail to interpret things at their true value. Very likely, Darwin had never had the opportunity to bob for eels in a New England pond. If so, he would have seen worms as they are, for no man can really know things until he has yearned for them. In the wintertime, the angleworm goes down well below the reach of the frost which will kill him. Indeed, he is sensitive to the cold and comes to the surface only when the sun has warmed the earth so that it is comfortable. Under the May moon he comes, sometimes clear out of his hole, and wanders far in search of friends or new countries. Often of a moist early morning, you may find big ones caught out on the concrete sidewalk or marooned in the dry dust of the road, remaining to be an easy prey for early birds. But these are the adventurous or unfortunate few. The many have remained all night, stretched far from the mouths of their burrows, indeed, but with tails still hooked in the door jam and able to make a rapid backward scramble into safety. It is this habit of the worm of a warm summer's evening that the wise angler utilises for his capture. The robin knows it too, and he spices his rapture of mantin song with trips across the lawn, where, between staccato hops, he eyes the grass sideways and catches late roisterers before they can get under cover. These he takes by the scruff of the neck, as one might say hauls them, stretching and resisting, forth from their homes and swallows them. Thus with the unrighteous, but even the upright, or rather downright, who are that, snugly ensconced as they intended to be, he is apt to see and seize, for the robin's eye is good and his bill is long enough. Angleworms after the joys or labours of the night are over, withdraw into their holes, but often not very far. They like to lie with the head drawn back just out of sight, near enough to the surface to bask in the warmth of the sun. Some line the outer ends of their burrows with leaves to keep them from the damp of the earth, thus further to enjoy themselves. Some, too, on retiring, draw leaves and sticks in, thus going into their holes and pulling the holes in after them, as the saying goes. Some merely pile small stones in a sort of an ant heap about the mouth. In the gravel walk, these little mounds are often taken for those piled by the industrious ants. The robins get many of these as he hops, and it is no wonder that his chestnut red front looms as round as a pumpkin and almost as big. There are many ways of getting angleworms, 
and many ways of using them after you get them, but he who wants them in bulk will do well to imitate the robin. Only do it in the night instead of the day. Of course you may go out with a spade and assault likely spots in the garden. That is often satisfactory, though crude. It is likely to result in small numbers and not well-assorted sizes. I knew a man once who used to jab for angleworms with a crowbar, and it was a rather astonishing thing to watch him and see the results. The angleworm's hearing is crude in the extreme. Indeed, hearing in the ordinary sense of the word, he has none. Mary Garden might sing at the mouth of his burrow, and he would never know it. Sousa's finest march on fifty instruments, count em, fifty, might be played on the bandstand just over his head, and he would never feel one trill. The only sound he gets is a crunching and grubbing in the earth near him. This he feels, for he is the chief food of the grubbing mole, and that sound means but one thing to him, that he is being dug for. So when he heard that crowbar wriggling and crunching in the gravel beneath, he used to flee to the sur- He used to flee to the surface in numbers. This man always whistled an eerie little tune while he was wriggling the bar. He said he was calling them, and it was quite like magic the way which they hustled to the surface and crawled about his feet. Most people fail in this method. It takes a peculiar motion to the bar, and a good eye in choosing the spot where the worms are. And then, few people know the tune. Nightfall and the robin's method is best. Wait till the full darkness of a moist night. Hang a lantern about your neck, and get down on your marrow bones by a grassy roadside. Worms do not see, and are not sensitive to light. You have but to crawl quietly forward and pick them up with a quick snatch, for the worm can feel, and he gets back in his burrow with an agility which is surprising. On the right kind of May night, I have seen the roadside of a Massachusetts village, the scene of more than one such spectacle. A stranger from the big world, seeing a very fat man crawling by the roadside, with a lantern hung about his neck, making frantic dabs here and there, and hauling forth great worms that resist and hung on valiantly and stretched like red rubber, might well have said that here was voodoo worship or a dicky initiate gone mad. But it was nothing of the sort, merely the crack local fisherman getting his bait. I have looked in vain in Isaac Walton, for a pain on angleworms or a description of a proper method for making a bob for eels, and I thereby find the complete angler incomplete. However, Isaac was an admirable fisherman in the rather patient and conservative way of the England of his time. He advised to bait for eels with a little, a very little, lamprey, which some call a pride and may in hot months be found many of them in the river Thames, and in many mud heaps in other rivers, yea, almost as usually as one finds worms in a dunghill. He should have seen a Yankee catch eels with a pole and line, with a big wad of worms tied to the end of the line, and no hook at all, for such is a bob, as we know it in Norfolk County. The making of a bob is not a pleasant affair for the angleworms, which seem born for destruction, so many are the creatures that prey on them, and I am glad of Darwin's assurance that, in spite of the fact that they wriggle when rent, they have little fineness of perception and feeling, and do not suffer much. This crack fisherman who was so stout and who used to get his bait by lantern light at night, to whom my memory runs, always made a bob of shoemaker's thread, because it was fine and of great strength. He had a long wire needle, like an upholsterer's needle, and with this he would deftly string great angle worms from head to tail, 
sliding them one by one down upon his shoemaker's thread, till he had a rope of them twelve feet long or so. Then tying the ends together, he looped this up till it hung in a wad of loops, as big as two fists. This, hung upon the end of his line, was all he needed for a night's fishing. The way of its use is this. First catch your night, one of those nights where there is a promise of soft rain in the sky, and the wind that is to bring it just sighs gently over the trees from the southward. Too much wind is bad, for it so ruffles the surface that the fish cannot find you. A very gentle ripple, on the contrary, is very helpful, for it makes a dancing path of light from your fire, up which the eels may trail you to find the very spot where hangs the bob. The stout fisherman used to take along at least two boys who would be useful in gathering wood for the fire and in other matters. Then, picking the exactly most favourable spot on the dam where the deep, dark water shoulders the bank, he built his fire after the full darkness had come. In common with many others, I regret the passing of the old-time cedar rail fence. Wire abominations may be cheaper, but who ever heard of building a fishing fire out of tariff-nurtured, wire-trust, fencing material. Fishing fire material of the proper sort is rare nowadays, and I can but feel that the youth of the present generation are born to barren years. With the fire well alight and the deep half-bushel basket placed handy by, the fisherman would make his line fast to the trip of that long light and cast the big bob far from him with a generous splash into the water, letting it sink till within a foot or two of the bottom. How far under the dark water the eels might see that flickering fire, and be drawn to it as moths circle about a light at night, I cannot say. But I think it was very far, for on a favourable night it seemed as if all the eels in the pond must have been drawn thither, I know that fishing without a fire you may catch one eel, or perhaps two, but you will never get as such a number as come to a proper blaze made of the driest of good old cedar rails. In South American waters there is an electric eel which can give a stout shock to such as touch him, but I think all eels must be electric. Else why the shock that one in the deep waters off the pond bank can send through a dozen feet of line and as much more of birch pole to your hand in the moment he pokes his nose against a bob. It tingles you in your palms and is as good as prescribed electric treatment from a battery, for it thrills you with a quickening of life and nerve and a magical alertness. The eel is not nearly so cautious with a bob as with a hook. He nibbles, which is the first shock. He bites, which is the second and stronger. Then he holds. I can see the stout fisherman now with the fire gleaming on his rugged face, his feet planted wide apart and his weight well on the hinder one, his hands wide apart on the pole and his whole attitude that of a lion cochant for a back somersault. At the nibble his face twitches, at the bite his knees bend, and then the end of the pole sags quickly downward with the line, as taut as a violin string. The eel has taken hold, his throat pointing teeth that tangled in the thread of the bob and the stout fisherman's weight has gone far back of his point of support. If the line should break, so would the fisherman's neck. They prate much to me about the stance and the swing, the addressing and the following through in driving a ball at golf. The words are used glibly, but I doubt if many know their real significance. Whatever that is, it all applies, and more to the proper bobbing of an eel.
It is the summoning of all the forces of a man's figure and personality in one supreme stroke. Holding on, quite literally by the skin of his teeth, the eel circles a section of the pond with his tail and seems to lift it with him. The line sings and the birch pole bends nearly double. It is for a second a question which will win, but the shoemaker's thread is very strong, and so is the stout fisherman. Suddenly, the eel gives up. Still hung to the bob, he shoots into the air the full length of the line, describes a circle in high heaven, of which the fisherman's feet are the centre, and drops in the grass, while the fisherman, in marvellous defiance of all laws of gravity, brings his 250 pound back to an upright position without losing his footing. Golf may be all very well, but it does not equal this. Small blame to the fisherman if he poises a moment like Ajax defying the lightning. Now, the boys have their innings. Somewhere in classic literature, the Assyrian came down like the wolf on the fold. So the boys upon the eel that flops mightily and wriggles in vain in the tall grass. He is dumped in the deep basket, and hardly is he there before the fisherman has swung another in that mighty circle. An eel is very canny, and often escapes a hook, even when well on. I never knew one to get away from a bob. Sometimes the half-bushel basket would go back home nearly full of them. And as for their size, I do not wish to say, except that no small ones seem to bite at a bob. In that I will quote from Isaac Walton, who, after giving excellent directions for dressing and cooking an eel, says, When I go to dress an eel thus, I wish he were as long and big as that which was caught in Peterborough River in the year 1667, which was a yard and three quarters long. To which I can but add, I defy old England to produce any bigger eels than we have in New England. The Vanishing Night Herons It is a long time since I have set eyes, in broad daylight, upon the black-crowned night heron, often known as Quark, and otherwise derisively named by the Impuritans. The scientists have also, it seems to me, joined in this derision, for they have dubbed him Nistocorax Nistocorax Navius, which is a libel on his language. At any rate, it sounds like it. The roots are evidently the same. Yesterday, however, in broad daylight, I saw two pair sailing down out of the sunlit sky to light on a tree by the border of the pond. Very white they looked in the glare of the day, and I wondered at first if four snowy egrets had not escaped the plume hunters after all and fled north for safety. Probably I shall never see snowy egrets again, though they used to stray north as far as this on occasions. Now, even the night heron, which used to nest here about in colonies of hundreds, is rarely seen. I suppose if bird species must become, one by one, extinct, we can as well afford to lose the night heron as any. He is not a particularly beautiful bird in appearance, though these four seemed handsome enough as they sailed grandly down into the trees on the pond border. His voice is unmelodious. Cork is only a convenient handle for his one word. It should rather be made up of the roughest consonants in the language, thrown together with raucous vigour. It sounds more like Hoosvuk shot into the mud out of a damp cloud. The voice of the night herons, sailing in companies over the marshes and ponds, used to sound like echoes of a convocation of witches falling through damp gloom as a broomstick flight went over. 
Shakespeare named a witch Sycorax. He may have been making game of herons. Today, having seen these four, I went down to the places which used to be the old-time haunts of night herons and looked carefully, but in vain, for traces of their presence. It is their nesting time. There should be eggs about to hatch, or young about to make prodigious and ungainly growth in singularly flimsy nests that let you see the blue of the eggs faintly visible through the loosely crossed twigs against the blue of the sky. These I did not find, and the big cedars which used to be so populous were lonely enough. Once there would be a nest in every tree, two-thirds of the way up, and a big heron sitting on guard at the top of the tree or astride the eggs on the nest itself. How the long-legged mother bird could sit on the loose nest and not resolve it into the component parts and drop the two-inch-long eggs to destruction on the peat moss beneath is still a mystery to me. But she could do it, and the young, after they were hatched, did it, sometimes six of them, and the nests remained after they were gone, in proof of it. Most birds' nests are marvels of construction. The black-crowned night herons seems a marvel of the lack of it, but I think few of us could make so ill a nest so well. The night heron's day begins at dusk and ends, as a rule, at daylight. His eyes have all the night-seeing ability of those of the owl, and he finds his way through the fog and darkness and his food as well. Yet the bird seems to see well enough by day. The four that sailed down to the pond yesterday, in the full glare of the afternoon sun, had no hesitation about their flight. They swung the corners of the wood and lighted on the limbs of trees with as much directness and certainty as a hawk might. Indeed, when their voracious young are growing up, they have to fish night and day. It seems to me that fish must be becoming more plentiful now than the black-crowned night herons are few in number, for a single bird must consume yearly an enormous quantity. I undertook the care and feeding of two once that I had taken from one of those impossible nests, they were the most solemnly ridiculous young creatures that were ever made. Man, says Plato, is a featherless biped. So were these youthful night herons. They were pretty nearly as naked as truth and might have passed for caricatures of Puritan conscience, for they were so erect they nearly fell over backwards. They would not stay in any nest made for them but preferred to inhabit the earth, usually just round the corner of something, whence they poked weird heads with staring eyes that discountenanced all creatures that they met. The family cat, notoriously fond of chicken, stalked them a bit the first day that they occupied the yard. At the psychological moment, when Felis Domesticatus was crouching, green-eyed, for a spring, the two gravely rose and faced her. She took one look at those pods of bodies on stilts, those strange heads stretched high above on attenuated necks, and faced the wooden severity of their stare for a good second. Then she gave forth a yowl of terror and fled to her favourite refuge beneath the barn whence she was not known to emerge for a space of twenty-four hours. There was something so solemn, so pokerish, so preternaturally dignified about these creatures that they seemed to be out of another, eerier world. If we ever get so advanced as to travel from planet to planet, I shall expect to find things like them peering round corners at me on some of the out-of-the-way satellites, the moons of Neptune, for instance. Most young birds will eat what you bring them 
and clamour for more until they are full. These young herons yawned at my approach as solemnly as if they were made of wood and worked by the pulling of a string. Never a sound did I know them to make during their brief stay with me, but they would stand motionless and silent and gape unwinkingly till a piece of fish was dropped within the yawn. Then it would close deliberately and reopen, the fish having vanished. Fish were plentiful that year, and so seemed to be time and bait, and I became curious as to the actual capacity of a growing night heron. I could feed either one until I could see the last piece still in the back of his mouth because there was standing room only. Yet if I went away but for a moment and came back, there they stood, as prodigiously empty as ever. The thing became interesting until I began to discover assorted piles of uneaten fish about the yard, and watching soon showed what was happening. The foot passengers out in the country have a motto, which says, Never refuse a ride. If you do not want it now, you may need it next time. This seemed to be the idea which worked sapwise in the cambium layers of these wooden young scions of the family Nystacorax Nystacorax Navius. They never refused a fish, as long as I stood by, their beaks having closed as well as possible on the very last piece required to stuff them to the tip, would remain closed. After they thought I had gone away, they would stalk gravely round a corner, looking over the shoulder with an innocence which was peculiarly bleary-eyed, then, believing the coast was clear, yawn the whole feeding into obscurity in the tall grass. Then they would stalk stoically forth with hands clasped behind the back, so to speak, and gape for some more. This was positively the only thing they did, except to wait patiently for a chance to do it again, and I soon tired of them and took them back to the rookery, where they were received and, so far as I could see, either by their own parents or as orphans at the public expense. It all seemed a matter of supreme indifference to these moon hoax chicks. There is much controversy as to whether animals act from reason or from instinct. I am convinced that these young night herons contained spiral springs and basswood wheels, and that thence came their actions. Probably, had I looked them over carefully enough, I should have found them inscribed with the motto, Made in Switzerland. I fancy many people confound the night heron, known to them only by his wild witch cry, voiced as he flies over their canoe in the summer dusk, with the great blue heron, which is nearly twice as big a bird. Perhaps I had better say twice as long in speaking of herons, for bigness has little to do with them. I well remember my amazement as a small boy coming out of the woods onto the shore of the pond with a big muzzle-loading army musket under my arm, my first hunting expedition, and scaring up a great blue heron. I had been reading the Arabian Nights and knew that the rock was a great bird that darkened the sun and carried off elephants in its talons. Very well. Here was the very bird in full flight before me, darkening the entire cove with its wings. As Sinabad of the sea might be tied to the leg of this one for aught I knew. Mechanically, the old musket came to my shoulder and roared, and when I had picked myself up and collected the musket and my senses, there lay the bird on the beach, dead but he was still an Arabian Nights sort of bird, for one of his dimensions had vanished, his bulk. He was all bill, neck, legs, and feathers, the wonder being how so small a body could sustain such a spread. The great blue heron, in spite of his slenderness, 
which you can interpret as grace or awkwardness, as you will, is a beautiful bird, and a welcome addition to the pond shore, the sheltered cove, or the sheltered brookside pool which he frequents. If you will come very softly to his accustomed stand, you may have a chance to see him sit, erect and motionless, the personification of dignity and vigilance. The very crown of his head is white, but you are more apt to notice the black feathers which border it and draw together behind into a crest, which gives a thought of reserved alertness to his motionless pose. The general impression of his colouring is that a salty grey, this melting into brownish on his neck, and being prettily touched with rufous and black on other parts of the body. It is a pleasure to watch his graven image pose, but it is an even greater one to see him take flight. His long legs bend under him, and he springs forward into the air in a mighty parabola. The wings arch in similar curves and lift him with the very first stroke seemingly a rod in air, and as they arch forward for the second, the long outstretched neck draws back and the long legs trail in very faithful reproduction of the ornamentation on a Japanese screen. You hardly feel that here is a living creature flying away from fear of you. It is rather as if a skillful decorator has magically painted the great bird in on the drop of the scene. But the flight of the great blue heron is strong if the body is small in comparison with his other dimensions, and he rapidly rises in the majesty of power and flaps out of sight over the treetops. The great blue heron is not rare, but I think he, too, is much less common than he used to be. Usually he does not summer with us, going farther north, where he nests in colonies. I seem to find him most often in late September or October, when he drops off for a few weeks, a pleasant fishing trip interlude in his flight to winter quarters in the south. But he is here now, and he may be met with on most any May morning if you'll seek out his haunts. Fully as common, but by no means so noticeable, are our little green heron, the third species of the genus that one is apt to see hereabouts. You will usually pass him unnoticed as he sits all day long in the shadow on a limb near the shore. Nor will you be apt to see him until he becomes convinced that you are about to approach too near. Then, with a little frightened croak that is more like a squeak, as if his hinges were rusty, he springs into the air, flutters along shore a few rods, and disappears into the wood again. The thought of this little fellow always brings to my mind the silent drowse and quivering heat of August afternoons along a drought-dwindled brook, where cardinal flowers lift crimson plumes on the margin of the still-remaining pools. Here, where deciduous trees shade the winding reaches, he loves to sit and wait for the cool of evening before dropping to the margin and hunting his supper. I always suspect him of being asleep there, with his glossy black head thrust under his green wing. That would give him an excuse for being surprised at close quarters, and account for his vast alarm when he does see you. If not, I think he would slip quietly away before you got too near, as so many birds do that see you in the woods before you see them. But perhaps not. Perhaps he trusts to luck and hopes till the very last that you will pass on and leave him to watch his game preserves in peace and decide which fishes and frogs he will find most appetizing. The little green heron is a solitary bird, a very recluse in fact, and I do not recall ever seeing two together. He is a nervous chap, after you have once flushed him, however and if you watch his flight with care, 
you may see him light, stretching his head high to see if you are following him, meanwhile nervously twitching his apology for a tail. Harbingers of Summer Out of the violet dusk of some June dawn, you will see the summer coming over the hill from the south, and you will know her from the spring at sight. I do not know how. I doubt if the whipper will, who has a jealous eye on the dawn and its signs, for its first appearance means bedtime, and surcease from labour for him knows. Yet he feels her presence, for he waits it as a sign to select the spot for his nest. The whippoorwill is hardly a home builder. He just occupies a flat for the summer, a place that seems no more fit for a home than any other flat. Just as I often wonder how apartment house dwellers find their way back at dinner time, in spite of the bewildering sameness of the surroundings, so it seems to me quite miraculous that the whippoorwill can find the way back to the eggs or young at daybreak. Nest, there is none. It is simply a spot picked, seemingly at random, on the brown last year's leaves or the bare rock of the pasture. But the whippoorwill has been here since early May, until now has not offered to take an apartment. Yesterday, without doubt, he saw the summer coming and picked his sight. But tomorrow or next day, he might find the two eggs there, if you are a wizard. It takes such to find a whippoorwill's egg. You might look at them and never see them, so well do they match the ground on which they lie. More like pebbles than anything else, with their dull white obscurely marked with lilac and brownish grey spots. I sometimes think the mother bird herself fails to find them, and that may be one reason why whippoorwills do not seem to increase in numbers. Like the whippoorwill, the scarlet tanager waits sight of the coming summer before he begins his nest. It is odd that the two should have even this habit in common, for otherwise they are very far apart. The tanager is essentially a bird of the daylight his very colours born of the sun. I rarely hear him or see his scarlet flame until the sunlight is on his treetop to make him seem all the more vivid. Then, as the day waxes and the robins one by one cease their singing, he takes up their song and continues it, often until the robins return to the choir as the afternoon shadows lengthen. The tanager's song is singularly like that of the robin, only more leisurely and refined. After you've become familiar with it, you begin to feel that the robin is a very huckster of a soloist. Kill him, cure him, give him psychic, is what the early settlers thought the robin sang to them. It always seems to me as if he sang, cherries, berries, strawberries. Buy a box, buy a box. You might translate the Scarlet Tanager's song into either set of words, but you would not. Instead, you would ponder long to find a phrase whose gentle refinement should express just the quality of it. Then I think you would give it up, as I always do, content to feel its pure serenity, which is quite beyond words. The tanager is just about beginning the weaving of his home, which is as gentle and refined in structure as his song. You may see through it if you get just the right position from below. Yet it is well built and strong, woven of slender selected twigs and tendrils, a delicate cup just big enough to hold three or four eggs of tender blue with their rufous-brown markings, and the olive-green mother-bird. The tanager's life is as open as the day, and as he watches southward from his pine treetop, you may well mark the coming of summer by the beginning of that nest, well out on a lower pine bough.
and if you are not fortunate enough to have a tanager in your pine grove, you might well take the time from another bird, as different from the scarlet flame of the treetop as the tanager is from the whippoorwill, that is the wood peewee. As the whippoorwill loves the darkness, and the tanager the bright sun of the topmost bough of the grove, so the wood peewee loves the resinous depths of the pines, where in the hot twilight of a summer midday, he pipes his cheerful little three-note song. Like the chickadee, he seems to sing best when it is hottest, and the thought of his song inevitably brings to mind the drone of the summer-loving insect, the prattle of the brook at the foot of the hill, and the lazy dappling of the sunlight as it falls perpendicularly to the feathery front of the cinnamon fern far below. He who finds hummingbirds' nests would do well to first take a course in hunting those of the wood peewee. The two seem to have the same type of mind when it comes to nest building, though the wood peewee is five times the size of the other, and proportionally easy to find. Each saddles his nest on a limb and covers it outside with grey lichen from the trees nearby so that from below it looks like merely a lichen-covered knot. As the wood peewee loves to sing his song in the shadows of the upper levels of the deep pine wood, so he loves to look down as he sings upon his nest on a limb below, usually twenty or more feet from the ground. Such hummingbirds' nests as I have found have been made of fern wool, or the papers of the blooms of dandelions, or other compositi just compacted together and lichen-covered. The wood peewee builds of moss and fine fibre, grass and rootlets, using the lichen covering for the outside, as does the hummingbird. It is a beautiful nest, a rustic home which perfectly fits the dead pine limb on which you often find it a nest as rustic as the grove and the bird. These two, the tanager and the wood peewee, I know are already picking the limbs for their nests and having an eye out for the available material, for I know that they have had the first word that summer is here. I got it myself from the southerly slope of the Blue Hill, a spot which I like to climb as the lookout goes to the cross trees whence the southerly outlook is far, and you may sight the sails of spring or summer, while yet they are hull down below the horizon of the season. All creatures love to climb. The young Gerardias have found a foothold, and put forth strange sinuate or pinnatifid leaves that puzzle you to identify them, until you note that last year's stalks and seed pods, now empty, but persistent. Exuberance and young life often take frolicsome ways of expending their vitality. When the Gerardias are two months older, they have settled down to growing of those wonderful yellow bells which fill the woodland with golden delight. Their stem leaves will lose all this riot of outline and coloration and settle down to plain, smooth-edged green. The blossoms may need a foil, but will brook no rival of their own stem. The path that I take to my southerly-looking masthead soon leaves the Gerardias behind. They need alluvium and a certain fertility and moisture, and the crevices of the rock are not for them. There, as I climb among the cedars, I pass the withered stalks of the saxifrage that a month ago made the crevices white. Now only an occasional belated blossom, scraggly and worn as if with dissipation, seems hastening to reach oblivion with its fellows. But the wild columbine still holds horns of honey plenty for the sipping of moth and butterfly, whose probicides are long enough to reach the ultimate tip where it is stored. You may have a mouthful of honey if you will bite off the tiny bulbs at the very ends of these cornucopias, 
a honey that has a fragrant sweetness that is unsurpassed in flavour. Nor are the bees behind you in knowledge. They may not reach the honey through the mouth of the horn, but they, too, can bite, and many a flower shows it, now that their season is passing. Their coral red and yellow glows with a rich radiance in the dusk under the cedars, and they have climbed far higher than the gerardias. With the columbine, right up onto the very ledges themselves, have come the barberry bushes. They must have seen the summer coming, and they were the first to pass the hint on to me, for they have hung themselves with all the gold in their jewel boxes, pendant raciums of exquisite jewel work everywhere, their sprays of tender green grouping and swaying in the wind, nodding and smiling, decked with earrings, brooches, bracelets and beads, all cunningly wrought of solid gold. Barbary bushes love the rough pasture, and even these rougher rocks, yet they bring to them only grace and elegance and refinement, and receive no hint of uncouthness or barbarity from their surroundings. These and a score of other herbs and shrubs clamber blithely upward and clothe the rocky hillside with beauty, but the queen of the place is the flowering dogwood. No other shrub has such airy blitheness or decorative beauty. There is something about the set of leaves that suggests green-clad sprites about to dance for joy, but now every dainty branch is as if thronged with white butterflies, poising for flight. No other plant shows such a spirituality of delight as this, now that it knows that the summer is here. On the plain below, the poplars shimmer and quiver translucent green, in the ecstasy of young leaves, all tremulous with happiness, and the tingle of surgent sap. Yet neither tree nor shrub, nor any flowering herb, seems to so stand on tiptoe for a flight into the blue heaven above, blossom and leaf, and branch and trunk, as does this dainty delight of the shady hillside the flowering dogwood. The summer does not explode as does the spring. The spring promises and delays, approaches and withdraws, coquettes until we are in despair, then suddenly swoops upon us and smothers in the delight of her full presence. But the summer comes genially and graciously forward, announced by a thousand heralds. Today you could not find on hillside or in lowland a spot that did not glow with the fact. On a bare ledge, where the gnarled cedars have held the rim of the hill all winter long against the gales and zero weather, I thought I might find a pause in the universal story. Here should be only grey rock and a rim of brown cedars, as much the furniture of winter as of summer but I had forgotten the outlook. On the fields far below, the tall grass so green that it was fairly blue in comparison with the yellow of the young leaves, rushed forward before the wind like a green flood of roaring water. Across the plain and up the slopes, it poured as the water of Niagara poured down the slope of the brink to fall. Even the white foam of the rapids was simulated in the silvery-green flashes that raced with the breeze. Only summer grass thus flows. No other season can give it such vivid motion. To me there came, too, a dozen summer messengers. Two or three varieties of transparent winged dragonflies swirled in and out of the little bay of sunshine. A fulvous and black butterfly lighted on the rock at my feet, and gently, rhythmically, raised and lowered its wings. It was as expressive of satisfaction as smacking the lips would be. Again and again, he slipped away and then sailed back, leaving me still in doubt as to whether he was the lovely little Melitea Harissi, or, 
Physiodes Nysteus, both of which are very solemn names for pretty little butterflies, which fly about as a signal that summer is already beginning to glow about us. And by and by, the joy of the spot seemed to soothe him, and he settled down for a longer stay, folding his wings and proving to me that he was Nysteus without question, for there on his hind wing was distinctly the mark of the silver crescent. Butterflies should have been popular when knighthood was in flower, for each carries the heraldic blazon of his house where all may see. I soon found my seat on the rock, disputed by a pair of dusky wings. I had found the earlier dusky wings of the woodland paths skittish and unwilling to let me get to close quarters with them. This may have been because I made the advances. I had been seated but a moment when this pair that had dashed madly away at my approach dashed as madly back and very nearly lighted on me. Then they dashed away again. Soon, however, they came back in more friendly fashion and settled down within reach of my hand, where I could observe them at leisure. Then I saw that this was to me a new variety of the dusky wing, the Thanaos Perseus, instead of the Thanaos Briso, as I had thought. Perseus's dusky wing had climbed the hill as I had, to see if summer was coming, and had found it here. The pale Corridalis, which nodded columbine-like head of softest coral red and yellow, knew it too, and drowsed in the sunshine as did the butterflies, but I went on, seeking more evidence. On the shore of the Hoosick Wissick pond, a wood thrush sits on her nest in a green briar clump, within ten feet of noisy picnickers. Bravely she sits and shields her eggs, nor does she stir for all the riot about her. I poked my head within the tangle till my face was within two feet of her, and still she did not move. Her throat swelled a little, and a questioning look came into her eyes. The wood thrush is a shy bird at ordinary times, but not when sitting on her nest. Then she seems to suddenly acquire a modest boldness that is as becoming as the gentle shyness of other times. We looked at one another in mutual friendliness. I noted the bright cinnamon brown of the head fading on the back to a soft olive brown, the whole having the smoothness and perfect fit of a lady's glove. The white throat and some of the black markings on the white breast were visible above the rim of the nest and her bill pointed skyward in the trustful, prayerful attitude of all birds on their nest. Brooding maternity has the same prayerful sweetness of attitude in the wood thrush that it has in the human mother. It always suggests white hands, clasped and raised in prayer and thanksgiving. While I watched the wood thrush, a quick gleam of gold and black caught my eye as it danced by in the sunshine outside the thicket. Here was a promise of summer indeed, and I followed it on, leaving the brooding thrush to her happiness. It led across the open, sandy plain to the south, and into the deep wood beyond. On the way, the chinquefoil and the buttercups, the strawberry blossoms and the running blackberries were full of fluttering little red butterflies, the coppers and the crescent spots, and whites and blues, a kaleidoscope of shifting colours. But it was not until I got into the deep golden shade of the dense wood that I saw the fulfilment of the promise. Here in the glow of sunlight, so strained and etherealised by passing through fluttering green that it was all one mist of colour, a vivid heart of chrysoprase, I found the wood full of great yellow butterflies. Dozens of them dancing up and down in soft radiance and lighting to put gorgeous yellow blossoms on twigs that could never put forth such beauty again. Here was the summer, 
coming sedately through the gold-green spaces of the wood, with scores of golden spirits dancing joyously about her. The tiger swallowtail, Papilio Turnus, as the lepidopodrists have named him, is the most beautiful of all our butterflies, painted in gold with black margins, and a single touch of scarlet cunningly applied to each wing. All the glow of summer seemed to be concentrated in him, and his presence is the final test of hers.